I was asked to mention one more thing. Our church has been in prayer towards the end of this week for Mary Heisey, who was involved in an accident on Wednesday afternoon with her golf cart. This won't surprise you at all about our dear sister Mary, our 94-year-old friend. She was riding her golf cart to her, uh, her daughter's house, and there's a portion of it where she had to go, has to go up on the road, uh, then back into the fields. And while the golf cart was on the road, the battery died. And Mary pushed it off the road herself, and in the process of it, it caught her and knocked her over, and uh, she broke her hip. She had surgery on Friday. It went very well. She, uh, I believe, is still at Lancaster Regional. They weren't sure the last I saw her what the plan was going to be. She'll probably spend a few weeks in a rehab hospital uh, doing therapy, but she is as indomitable as she always has been. So uh, we give thanks to God for her. I want you to think for just a moment about the last wedding that you attended, and I want you to uh, remember or think about what was the best part of the day. What was, in all the events that go into that, that celebration, what was the best part of it for you? Uh, I suppose it depends on your perspective, doesn't it? It depends on who you are when you're at that uh, ceremony and that reception. If you're the mother of the bride and you're sitting down here, maybe it's that moment when you see your daughter coming down the aisle. You stand, everyone follows your lead, and that's the moment in your life most likely to produce tears, right? Now, if you're the best man on the wedding day, maybe you're thinking about your speech. I've heard some really good speeches from uh, best men and maids of honor. If you're an eight-year-old child, maybe for you the best part of the day is the opportunity to throw birdseed at somebody. When, when else can you do that, right? When else is that not rude except at a wedding to throw birdseed at some? Or if, if uh, unfortunately, it's bubbles, you still blow hard enough to try to hit them with the bubbles, right? Um, or ha, maybe uh, if you're eight years old, your favorite part of the day is the opportunity to hit your glass with your silverware. Ding, 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 ding. When else can you do that without your mother yelling at you? Uh, I, ha- I was at a wedding once where uh, a young child was so enthusiastic she shattered her glass looking for something to happen. Uh, if you're the groom, if you're the groom, maybe the best part of the day happens out of sight, that time when your study of Solomon's Song of Songs pays off. You know what I'm saying. Uh, if you're the father of the bride, maybe it's that moment that you get to walk her down the aisle and, and you, you publicly hand her over to this young man who's promised to love and cherish her, this young man you're sure is unequal to the task. If you go to the wedding hungry, you're, you're looking for the hors d'oeuvres. If you have a sweet tooth, maybe it's the cake. Some of you love the da- to dance and the, you endure the, uh, that wedding and all those introductions and traditions and speeches so you can dance. If you have a great sense of humor, maybe you're looking for the moment when the flower girl and the ring bearer walk down the aisle. That's always a treat. It never goes as well in their ceremony as it does in rehearsal. What are they going to do? Who knows? It'll be great. If you're romantic, maybe you're thinking about that kiss at the end of the ceremony. Aww. As a pastor, that's my favorite because it means I'm almost done. The job is almost finished. 
What's the best moment of that day? It depends on your perspective, I suppose. One thing I imagine that we would all agree on, though, is what is not the best part of the day. The best part of the day is not sitting in the auditorium or the sanctuary waiting for the wedding to begin. Nobody looks forward to that. It's rude to show up late for a wedding, so you come and, and early and, and you walk in and usher escorts you. You sit down and you sit and wait. Uh, maybe you read the program. You look at the flowers. Uh, the music is playing. I'm sorry, Ryan. It, it's still just filler music, okay? The musicians may be great, but it's still just... It's the non-moving equivalent of elevator music. While you're sitting there waiting for the ceremony to begin. And you wait and you wait. No one, no one looks forward to that. At least now we have smartphones so we can check Facebook or take selfies. But there's just nothing else going on at that moment. No one says, you know, the best part of that wedding was the 30 minutes before it started. And nobody just comes for that. You, you don't come and sit down and then three minutes before it's supposed to start, get up and leave because you've had the best part. Nobody does that. I want to spend the next three months trying to convince you, to demonstrate to you from the Bible, to use all of the persuasive powers that I have, that you should think about this life, the life that you are experiencing right now, more like waiting for the wedding to start and less like the grand celebration itself. In other words, uh, my goal is to help develop your sense of anticipation for the life that is to come. I want to help you learn to long more uh, to, to learn to long more for the coming of Jesus so much that it changes how you approach the life that is. And the reason I have set this as my goal is because we are going to spend the next three months in the book of Second Thessalonians. I want to elevate and, uh, the preeminence of the day of the Lord so in your mind because that's what the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul was trying to do to these believers in the uh, Macedonian city of Thessalonica. This day that we have is important. It matters. This day, you may make decisions that have eternal implications. But compared to that day, this day is bland. It's colorless. It's dull. In every sense, for those who are followers of Jesus Christ, the best is yet to come. 2 Thessalonians is a book about the day of the Lord that is to come and how that future shapes us in the present one. As is our custom when we start studying a new book, we're going to spend some time today talking about the background and introductory issues of 2 Thessalonians. We want to orient ourselves around this book. The reason we do that is because we want to be better skilled students of the Bible. Christian people are readers. You may not think of yourself as a reader. Maybe... Maybe you don't uh, devour voraciously novels or history or poetry or, or anything like that. But because we recognize that this is God's word, we are people of the book. We're readers. We, we believe that when we read this book, God speaks to his people. I want to introduce you to Second Thessalonians in a couple of different ways. First, we're going to talk about um, where the church in Thessalonica came from, how the church in Thessalonica came to be. And then second, we're going to talk about the, the Thessalonian letters themselves. 
Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 17. Acts 17 is where I want to direct your attention this morning as uh, we begin. We're going to go back to Acts because we're going to start with where the church in Thessalonica came from. Uh, we went through Acts not too long ago. We turned to Acts a lot. Uh, my goal is this morning, I want to show you a couple things in Acts 17 that are specifically relevant to the letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, the, the second one. Now, the thread of the story that we're on actually begins in Acts chapter 16. Paul has left Antioch for what we call his second missionary journey. Now, I know that some of you are thinking, I hope that at least one person is thinking this at this moment in time. You know my opinion about one of the most important tools that you should have when you read the book of Acts, namely a map, a map. So uh, if your Bible doesn't have a map, go sell it or go check the lost and found and find one that does, all right? You should have maps. In fact, I want you to turn for a minute to the maps that are in the back of your Bible and find the one that says Paul's Missionary Journeys. Look in the back. If you don't have a Bible with maps in it, there are maps in the Pew Bible. I discovered this last year. Uh, Right before the book of Matthew, there is a map relevant to the New Testament. So if you need a Pew Bible, look right before the book of Matthew. That's a terrible place to put it, but that's where a map is. You'll find one nonetheless there. So look, and we're going to trace Paul's second missionary journey. Now remember, he starts over in the eastern side of the map in Antioch. That's the headquarters for Paul's uh, uh, travels, uh, for his missionary journeys. And he goes north just a little bit, and then, uh, then he'll go west, and he goes through uh, Lystra and Derby and Iconium. And, and then what happens throughout Acts 16 describes Paul seems to be on an effort in his second missionary journey to try to go to Ephesus. It seems like he's trying to go west and just south a little bit to the city of Ephesus, but the Holy Spirit won't let him do it. Over and over again, God says, no, you can't go. Don't go to Ephesus. And he has this vision. He goes all the way to the end of what is modern-day Turkey, and he goes from uh, across the Aegean Sea, you can see that there, to Neapolis and then to Philippi. You see Paul making it to Philippi in your map? Uh, Philippi is the first major city that he came to (coughs) in the world that's known as Macedonia. Uh, Ancient Greece, known at this time as the region of Macedonia. Macedonia was populated by people who were ethnically Greek, but at this time they were ruled over by the Roman Empire. So he's speaking Greek to them, but they're ruled by Roman laws. Now, in Philippi, you know this, Paul preaches and teaches, and he, he meets with a, a, a small group of believers that come to faith in Jesus through his ministry. And then Paul is, oh, there's a riot, he's arrested, he's beaten, he's imprisoned, and uh, sent out of town. It's a theme in Paul's life. One convert of note in Philippi, I'll mention Lydia, Lydia the seller of purple. Well, uh, Paul leaves Philippi, he goes west, he travels through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and then he stops in Thessalonica. You see the map? Uh, You can find Thessalonica in your map, hopefully. Now, why? He stops in Thessalonica because it is the largest and most important city in Macedonia. It's the capital of the region. Uh, It has a a wonderful and very busy harbor. Its main street that runs right through it is the Ignatian Way. The Ignatian Way was the main east-west route in the Roman Empire. If you were anywhere in Asia Minor or Turkey, I guess in your mind it would be over here, and you wanted to go west to Rome, 
you would travel the Ignatian Way, which would take you through, through Thessalonica. It's the equivalent of the Lincoln Highway, all right, running right through, going east to west. So this is an important city, a big city. Everybody went through this city. Uh, it was a wealthy city. There was a population of about 250,000 people at the time. It's a commercial, wonderful city. It's a prime location for Paul's strategy of planting churches in influential cities. Thessalonica was, we're going to call this, a free city. What that means is that it was free under the Roman Empire to worship, uh, no, to rule itself. So they elected their own rulers. They called them politarchs. Um, the Bible used that phrase a long time before uh, scholars of ancient Rome did, and they thought the Bible was off until archaeology showed them that the Bible was right all along. Well, Thessalonica was ruled by politarchs, and uh, this rule, though, was tentative. Um, they were still under Rome's control, but they had a great measure of freedom. And one of the ways that they protected this freedom, one of the ways that they showed that they were loyal Romans, even though they were free, was by their devout worship of the emperor. The emperor was treated by, like a god. In fact, archaeologists have found in ancient uh, Thessalonica a statue of Caesar Augustus and a temple to Caesar Augustus that was there in Paul's day. Paul certainly saw this temple and that statue. The city was diverse, but what gave them their identity, what gave them their sense of unity as a people, was their devotion to the emperor. They were the city that worshipped Caesar. Don't you think for a minute here uh, with me about what gives Americans, what gives us our sense of identity, our sense of unity? Seems to be fading a little bit these days, but uh, what does it mean to be an American? What unites us as American people? Um, one of the things that, that come to mind for me was uh, freedom. We are the freedom people. We have freedom ensconced in our uh, founding documents. The history shows us that we have used the power that we have to free people. It's not a perfect story, but this is the story we tell when we talk about. Uh, we, we fought for freedom from the tyranny of the British monarchy. Our most revered president freed the slaves. We freed Europe twice. We defeated Nazism and communism and set people living under those tyrannies free. We've been debating for the last 15 years or so whether or not we can bring freedom to the Middle East, whether we can or whether we should. Do they want it? This is the debate that we're having about how we use our power. That's America, but the issue here is their commitment as a people to Caesar. Now, enter Paul Let's go back to Acts 17, verse 1. He comes to this city. Acts 17, verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. He said, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. And these four verses tell us two things. First, they tell us about Paul's emphasis in his ministry. What did he preach? What did he proclaim? He pro came proclaiming and announcing the centrality of Jesus. 
Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God's appointed, anointed ruler. Now, can you see how that might conflict with the worship of the emperor? We'll come back to that. Second, what we see here in this passage is the composition of this church in Thessalonica. There's Jews, God-fearing Greeks, and prominent women. Quite a few prominent women, the text says. And the text will also tell us the same thing happens in Berea, the next city that he goes to. We'll come to that in just a minute. And one commentator noticed this here, this theme in Macedonia. There's Lydia and Philippi, prominent women in Thessalonica, prominent women in Berea. What's happening, this commentator suggests that there was a higher status of women in Macedonia than other places of the empire. And it seems like uh, they're responding and, and, and providing some preeminence to the congregation by, these, by their presence and their belief in Jesus. Maybe. Verse 5 is where the problems begin. All right? Look at what the text says. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Uh, They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out of the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. There's a riot in Philippi. Now there's a riot in Thessalonica. And apparently this seems to be a -a rent-a-mob of some kind. It says, they rounded up, verse 5, some bad characters from the marketplace and formed a mob. I love how the King James, the King James translation says this is just wonderful. Listen to what it says. But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them... Certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. It's wonderful. Wonder. Certain lewd fellows of a baser sort. That would be a great name for a rock band. If you're thinking of starting a rock band, certain lewd fellows of the baser sort would just be perfect, I think. This is a mob. And, and it forms, the, trying to, the, to, to kick Paul out of the city. And, and the, the charge, verse 7, I'm very interested in the charge. They are defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Verse 7 is is key. There's another king. There's a king whose name is Jesus. They're defying Caesar. Paul has gone to this city where Caesar is worshipped as a god, and he has announced that there is only one god who has walked on the earth. And not only is he the one true God, the only true God, but he is also the coming king who is going to bring every kingdom on earth to an end. He will come with an army and he will destroy Caesar's kingdom. How well did that go over in Thessalonica? Jesus Christ will return to earth someday and if the United States exists, he will destroy it. Does that bother you to hear hear me say that? bothers me a little bit to say it. I like to say things like that about, about uh, other people. Someday Jesus Christ is going to come to earth and he's going to remove Kim Jong-un from the throne of North Korea and he's going to obliterate every trace. Uh, Jesus is going to obliterate every trace of that dictator's tyrannical, suffocating rule. That sounds really good. It sounds less good to me to say that if she still exists, Jesus is going to destroy America. 
Now imagine if that makes you a little uncomfortable. Imagine that you're in Thessalonica worshiping the emperor and Paul says this about Caesar. You get a little bit of the flavor of how this is impacting these people. It's not, it's not like Paul hates Rome. Paul seems quite indifferent to Rome. He, he it doesn't, uh, indifferent at this stage to the Roman Empire. He's not anti-Rome, but he's so pro-Jesus by comparison, it seems like he's anti-Rome. One of the things that Second Thessalonians does for us is it challenges us in particular as we think about this. Are you that pro-Jesus? Are you so pro-Jesus so longing for him to come, even with all of the implications of his rule as king of the earth, unchallenged king of the earth, you're so pro-Jesus that your patriotism, by comparison, is indifference. I use the word indifference. That's not actually the word that Jesus used. Uh, Jesus was talking about your relative love for him, and he didn't use the word indifference. He actually used the word hate. Remember that? If you want to follow me and you don't hate your mother, your father, your brother, your sisters, your wife, your husband, your children, you're not worthy of me. That pro-Jesus, so pro-Jesus by comparison that everything else looks like hate. Certainly on that list, if we were to carry it out, we could logically add your country, your sports team, your technology company. I have a problem when I read Second Thessalonians. Here's my problem. Huh. Maybe you have the problem too. There's so many things that I'm really looking forward to. I'm lo- really looking forward to the new Star Wars movie that's going to come out in December. Some of you are really looking forward to your iPhone 7 that's going to show up at your house sometime. Uh, You're really looking forward to your own wedding someday. You're looking forward to retirement. If you want to follow Jesus and you don't, by comparison, hate retirement, hate your fiancé, hate your iPhone, you're not worthy of following him. Ooh. Second Thessalonians. The challenge is stretching us. Caesar has made it illegal to predict, predict or guess about the date of Caesar's death. You're not supposed to talk about the end of Caesar's reign at all. In fact, it was against the, the law. Loyal Romans took an oath. They took an oath that sounded like this. I swear that I will support Caesar Augustus, his children and descendants throughout my life in word, deed, and thought, that in whatsoever concerns them I will spare neither body nor soul nor life nor children, that whenever I see or hear of anything being said, planned, or done against them, I will report it, and whomsoever they regard as enemies I will attack and pursue with arms and the sword by land and by sea. And Paul comes preaching another king named Jesus. Christianity is so threatening. What I appreciate about this text is that at least the people understand the threat that Christianity represents. It's not domesticated. It's not some good add-on to your life that's supposed to make you a nice person. 
It's threatening. It's absolutely threatening to your independence and your autonomy. There is a Lord to whom the whole world will bow in submission. Some will bow gladly as his followers. Some will bow being forced to their knees grudgingly as vanquished foes. But all will bow. It's not a threat that's easily faced. This week I had lunch with John Birkenbein. John Birkenbein is uh, one of our outreach partners. He and his wife, uh, Melanie, uh, moved here in June to start working with navigators full-time on the campus of Millersville University. So happy that our church is involved in their ministry. It's, it's excellent. I was talking to John, and he was telling me about a, a man that he met this past year. John and Melanie were at Penn State and uh, working with navigators there. And they had somebody come. He was a local man, actually, local to Lancaster. He's a, a medical doctor, and he does presentations. And he did a presentation to the navigators one night on apologetics. He loves apologetics. Apologetics, of course, is uh, answering objections and questions that people have about Christianity. So he gave a presentation to the students of navigators at Penn State. And uh, afterwards, he said, now, if you have more questions to ask me, come. I want to talk to you about them. I'll meet you for breakfast tomorrow morning at Panera. I'll pay for your breakfast. You come and ask me any question you want. Some of you want to know this guy's number, I know. But anyway, uh, this is the deal. He's, it's great. He's heavily invested in this. He said to John after the meeting, he said, you know, I have discovered after years of doing this that 90%, I could answer 90% of the questions of completely that students have. I could satisfy 100% of the questions of most of them And for most of the students, it will not actually make any difference in the role that Jesus plays in their lives. Why is that? This man thinks that for many people, not all people, but for many people, the objections and arguments they have to the Bible are actually a cover for something else that is going on in their mind and their heart. In other words... They think to themselves, if I can reject Jesus because I don't believe in the Bible, the reliability of the Bible, or I have doubts about the historicity of the resurrection, or I have problems with the problem of evil, or I have questions about genocide in the Old Testament, if, if, I, can, if I can keep those preeminent in my mind, then I don't need to deal with the claims that Jesus makes on my life. I don't have to think about the Bible's diagnosis of me as a sinner who's accountable to God, as someone who is naturally deserving of God's wrath, a human being that is so condemned that I'm in such dire straits that I am desperate for a Savior. If I can use those questions, I don't have to really think about the threat that Christianity is to my mind and my heart. It doesn't happen all the time. It's certainly not the only reason that people raise questions. But we have to deal with this. Christianity is a threat. In every culture it encounters, it affirms some things. We're all image bearers. And it confronts some things. We're image bearers in rebellion. You have to deal with that in your life and as a person. For example, we're the freedom people. We're Americans. We're the freedom people. But we have a a faith where the prevailing motif of the Bible is servanthood, slavery. You, You can't follow Jesus far and deeply unless you give up your rights. It's a demand. Here the threat that Paul brings is supposedly to Caesar's reign, and because of that, it's a threat to the Thessalonians. So Acts 17.10 tells us, as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. What kind of teacher leaves in the middle of the night 
It's not good for your reputation to run away in the middle of the night. We'll talk about that and come back to that in a few minutes. Now, I want to follow Paul uh, for just a minute here as he travels, and then we're going to, uh, it'll help us find where the Thessalonians fits in. Uh, Paul goes to Berea, and uh, he has a wonderful ministry in Berea, and many people become followers of Jesus. But then verse 13 of Acts 17 says, When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea too, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. <laughs> uh, so the Thessalonians are going to be persecuted in their town for following Jesus. When your persecutors are so... Uh, uh, vigorous that they take their persecution on the road, you know it's going to be bad for you. They they chase Paul out of Berea too. They don't want him in Thessalonica. They don't want him in Berea. They chase him out. Verse 14, the believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Then verse 15 says, those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So Paul goes to Athens, um, Silas and uh, Timothy don't go. In fact, what happens is they go back into Macedonia. Look at verse... We're going to go to chapter 18. Paul goes to Athens, then he goes to Corinth. And then in chapter 18, verse 5, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, why does Paul do this? What's the change here? I think Paul... Silas and Timothy bring to Paul money from the church in Thessalonica and the church in Philippi supporting him so that he can give himself full time to the work. But they also bring him news. They bring him news about what's going on in the church in Thessalonica. Hence, we have 1 Thessalonians. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. All right, let's look at 1 Thessalonians first. We're going to turn the corner and talk about Paul's Thessalonian letters But I want you to see something, how Thessalonians slides right into the story that we've been talking about from the book of Acts. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17. 2.17. Look at what 1 Thessalonians 2.17 says. text says, Brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing... We made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. He's answering those objections. Why did Paul leave in the middle of the night? What was wrong with him? What's going on? He's, I wanted to return. Really, I did. Verse 19. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes, if it is, is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service and spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. So Paul went to Athens. Timothy and Silas stayed in Macedonia. Timothy in particular went to Thessalonica. Verse 3, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you, and your labor might have been in vain. But, verse 6, Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. 
Can you see how 1 Thessalonians fits right into that story in Acts? Timothy's come to him. Paul's been chased out of town. Timothy's come to him, and, and there's good news. Oh, there's good news. Timothy says they're following Jesus faithfully, even though they're being persecuted. And Paul writes 1 Thessalonians. Write this wonderful letter where he, he encourages them, and he talks about his relationship with them. In the first three chapters in particular, he pours out his love for them, his care. He reviews how he served them. He encourages them for how they're following Jesus and maintaining their faith in the midst of persecution. It's great. And then in chapter 4 and 5, he turns to some of the issues that they have, some of the questions. They're struggling, verse 4. They're struggling with the issue of sexual purity. People who know Jesus, they control themselves, they live their lives in a different way than people who don't know Jesus. He makes that clear. Uh, Verse 5, don't live in passionate lust like the pagans who don't know God. If you know God, you live your life sexually different, differently than if you do. So he has, and they're, they're learning this. They're struggling to learn this. So he writes to them about it, about being, uh, avoiding sexual immorality. That's in chapter 4. Then from chapter 4, verse 13, on through the end, they have questions about the end times. They have questions about what's going to happen next. Most of the believers in uh, 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 Paul's day, and Paul was among them, because they believed that the return of Jesus was going to be imminent, could have happened at any time, believed that Jesus was going to return in their lifetime. Paul writes about how we who are alive and remain are going to be caught up in the air. They believed that they were going to be alive to see the return of Jesus. But they had questions about the people who had died, the followers of Jesus who died. They're dead. When Jesus comes back, are they going to participate in Jesus' kingdom? What's going to happen to them? Are they, did they lose their opportunity to, to see Jesus? What's going to happen? And he answers the question, oh no, <laughs> don't worry about those who have, he uses the phrase, fallen asleep in Jesus. Then in chapter 5, they're concerned about, about the day of the Lord. Tyler read it a little bit ago. Brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So he answers this question for them too. Now, then uh, there, he writes them these things, but some of their confusion remains. They're still confused. So he writes Second Thessalonians to them. On the back of your uh, notes, or maybe the front, depending on what you consider the front, uh, there's this chart that looks like this. Look at this for just a minute here. I always try to give these to you when we start a new book of the, of the Bible. They look basically the same. And here is a chart of Second Thessalonians. So you can see the whole thing here. Um, here's some of the facts. Let's talk about Second Thessalonians. First of all, it's written by Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Um, Thessalonians, the Thessalonian epistles seem to be Paul's most collaborative works. He uses the term we there more often than any, anywhere of his other epistles. Um, he wrote to the church in Thessalonica. We read that in 2 Thessalonians 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church in the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When did he write it? Oh, we don't know. Maybe about A.D. 51 or so from Corinth. I still think Paul was in Corinth. I think this is what happened. Uh, Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians. He sent it off to Thessalonica with a friend. I don't know who. And the messenger delivered the book and, and uh, in a short bit of time came back to Paul and said, Paul, it was great. They loved First Thessalonians so much you should write a sequel. And um, he told them about how the church was progressing, what was happening. And, uh, but the messenger said, 
But they still have some questions. There's some things they didn't quite get right. They're a little bit confused about. Um, so, I don't know, maybe you could clarify some of the questions. And Second Thessalonians, I think, is that clarification, that clarifying letter that Paul sent back to answer some of the issues that were raised in First Thessalonians and calm them down a little bit about some of the concerns that they still had. That's actually the, the purpose as to why he wrote Second Thessalonians. We don't have the ref- we don't have we don't have the references in Second Thessalonians like we do in First Thessalonians to put it right neatly in the Book of Acts. But that seems to be what has happened here. Within about twelve to eighteen months after writing First Thessalonians, Paul writes the second letter. There's some controversies related to these books that I haven't mentioned. Every New Testament book, there's some guy who somewhere tried to get a PhD by proving that somebody else wrote these books that Paul didn't write 2 Thessalonians, or that Paul didn't write 1 Thessalonians. There's, there's books you can read that say that. The arguments are not very good, so we're not going to talk about them, but they're there. Another thing that, that comes up sometimes is that some people wonder whether or not 2 Thessalonians was written first, making 2 Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians and 1 Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians, which is confusing. The books of the Bible that we have in the order that they're in are here because of their length. They were ordered in the Bible by length, not by chronology. So there's some people who say, no, 2 Thessalonians seems like it was first, and 1 Thessalonians seems like it was second. Here's my, the problem with this. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2, um, is that what I want? Verse 15, verse 15, 2 Thessalonians 2, 15. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Well, I think 2 Thessalonians is pretty clear that there was another letter that Paul had already written to them. You know, what's so amazing here is that there are traditional views of the New Testament, and we hold to them because it's what the New Testament says, and, and they withstand a lot of challenges and a lot of abuse that people have heaped upon the Bible. Now, I want to talk more specifically about the day of the Lord as we finish here. This day of the Lord. Paul wrote the church in Thessalonica to encourage them to think carefully and clearly about the day of the Lord and to apply the day of the Lord to their lives. Generally speaking, when the Bible talks about how history is going to unfold, it talks about this day and it talks about the age to come. This day today and tomorrow, this age and the age of the resurrection. Now, by the way, what that means is that Christianity, unlike some religions, believes that history is a straight line moving forward, not a loop. We're not on a continuous repeating loop. Uh, Some faiths believe that Christianity is a straight line of progress. There is this age and there is the age to come. And the transition between this age and the age to come is the day of the Lord. That's how the Lord Jesus is going to move us from this age to the age to come, the day of the Lord. Now, I don't want to be too confusing, but think about this here with me for a minute. Jesus is the master of the day of the Lord. It's his day. And yet he was born, wasn't he, in our day, in this age. He was born, he lived his life, He was crucified. He rose again. The first fruits of the age of the resurrection. In this age, Jesus came and rose again. There's 
there appears to be a little bit of overlap between this age and the age that is to come. The overlap comes because of the fact that Jesus entered and was risen in our age. And actually, there's a little bit of overlap in your life, too. If you're a follower of Jesus, you live in this age, but your mind and heart is set on the age that is to come. A little bit of overlap. Actually, um, we're born in this life, born alienated from God, sinful by nature and by choice. We are in Christ and by Christ made citizens of the new age because he has paid the penalty for our sins and gives us forgiveness and new life by faith. We are citizens of that new age, though we live in this age. A little odd. Not so odd that you, you don't understand, that you can't understand this. I want you to think about this summer when you were thinking about the beach and how the shore, sorry, and how you were going to go to the shore, right? You're at work, you're leaving Saturday morning, and on Friday afternoon you're at work and it's 2.30, right? You're leaving the next day for the shore. Your body may be at work, but your mind and your heart is at the age to come, right? You, there you are, you're there, but you're thinking about all the things you're going to do and all the things you're going to enjoy while you're at the shore. You are a person of two ages, work and the shore. This is how we are, we are people of this age. We live here, but we think about the age to come. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, um, the invitation of the Bible is to become a person of the new age by turning to Jesus as your Savior. Huh. Wonderful. This, this transition from this age to the age to come is the day of the Lord. Now, the term day of the Lord is used all the way through the Old Testament, and basically it refers to any time in specific when God comes and visits with judgment and blessing his people. Mostly judgment, also blessing. In the, New Test- in the Old Testament, there's several days of the Lord, several times when God came in particular with judgment. In the New Testament, though, uh, it is reduced to one, one, the day of the Lord. It is the period of time in which the Lord Jesus is going to bring this age to a close and usher in the new age. And 2 Thessalonians is here to clarify and apply that. He applies it in chapter 1. In chapter 1, it tells us that we persevere in following Jesus because there is the day of the Lord to come. There is that resurrection age coming. Look at verse 6 of 2 Thessalonians 1. It says, you're suffering now. I know you're suffering now. But remember, God is just. He's going to pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Don't quit because the Lord Jesus is coming back. Persevere. Now in chapter 2, he clarifies the day of the Lord by describing some of the events that precede it. Look at verse 2. Don't become easily unsettled or alarmed by teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. And here he lists these, these things. And he talks about the man of lawlessness. Who's that? The man of sin. We're going to spend some time talking about that. I'm going to tell you which world politician he's talking about. I have a fascinating story to tell you about some Italian missionaries and Mussolini that you'll really enjoy. That'll come in a few weeks. Bless the Lord comes first. 
uh, who, who, this, this man of sin who's going to be revealed, this man of lawlessness, and it tells us what he's going to do. Now, this is very interesting here. There is some, some scholars, when they come to the Thessalonian epistles, are confused because 1 Thessalonians seems to talk about the coming of the Lord as if it's imminent. It's going to happen at any moment. It could happen today. But 2 Thessalonians seems to talk about there being signs that precede the day of the Lord. What's happening? Well, we'll talk about that. I don't think it's too confusing. So we'll get to it. In chapter 3, he applies the day of the Lord again to the issue of idleness. This has come up before. Some people who were, uh, believe that the day of the Lord is coming quit their jobs. They stopped working in order to wait for him. Paul had already addressed this in 1 Thessalonians, but they haven't gotten to work yet, so he has to tell them again. Verse 1 of chapter 3, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just... Oh, sorry, that's not what I want to do. Verse 6, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. The coming of the Lord Jesus is a reason to persevere. It is not a reason to quit. You can see from this chart here, Paul's applying this that, that day. He's applying it consistently to us. It's a short book. It's a, it's a relatively simple book. Oh, but it's a subversive book. It's subversive. If we read it right, it has the potential to expand your world to undo what you do today with richness and color because of what is going to happen tomorrow. I don't know how you read mystery novels. There's two different ways that people read mystery novels. You pick them up. Some of you flip to the back pretty quick to see who done it. You want to know how it's going to end. The others of you, though, are very faithfully never, ever do that. You're going to read from beginning to end and you're going to figure it out. Both of you, though, come to that book with the same promise. Agatha Christie makes you a promise when you pick up one of her books. And the promise is that at the end, the guilty are going to be punished, the innocent are going to be vindicated, and the victim is going to get justice. That's the promise. There is an end to be had. In 2 Thessalonians, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be lining up our lives with the end that is all about Jesus. Kind of like a pilot, when he comes and lands his plane, he lines himself up with the runway. Every good uh, 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 air trip ends on, on the runway. You're going to line up your life with the runway. And, and, and we're going to line up our lives with the end that, that is about the day of the Lord, that is about Jesus. That's why we're going to be studying this book. Every airline journey has an end. And so does this sermon. Let's pray, shall we? <laughs> Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your great faithfulness to us. Lord, our desire is, as we, as we look in this book in the days that are to come, that you would indeed help us to line up our lives with the end that is to be. Lord, uh, we confess too often we are indifferent about that day and more passionate about the day that is. We pray that you would correct us and challenge us and change how we think. That we would be more dissatisfied with this life because of the anticipation of satisfaction that will come when the Lord Jesus is revealed with his heavenly glory from 
uh, on earth. It will, that's a great day. Fill us with longing for it. Correct us in our distracting, distractedness. Thank you for this clear and authoritative word we have. You have given it to us to correct and train and teach and admonish us how grateful we are. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.